0: Well, hopefully you're still in Matthew chapter 5, and that's where we're going to be uh, for the next uh, minutes or so. Uh, Tonight's message, um, I have to say, uh, is an immense challenge. Uh, It's an immense challenge to me uh, as I've been uh, studying this passage, uh, and I think it's going to be an immense challenge to all of us. And if uh, you come away from this evening and you've said, no, that wasn't really a challenge, then you have not got this message. Okay, this is, uh, I think, some of the hardest uh, and most difficult words for us in the whole of scripture. Uh, This is the most difficult thing that Jesus tells us to do, but it's what he expects of us as his people. As we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, so far, uh, after the Beatitudes, which Describe what the characteristics of those in the kingdom are like. Uh, from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20 onwards, Jesus has been teaching about what righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and teachers of the law looks like. He's shown us in six examples the contrast of what the religious leaders were teaching and what the demands of the Old Testament and thus what God's kingdom Uh, application really looks like and we've been challenged I think week by week as we've seen that there is such a shallow definition of what we would call righteousness and Jesus takes us deeper because he takes us right to the heart it's more than what the externals look like as Jesus tells us what righteousness is he digs into our hearts and that's why it's challenging because lots of us can put on a really good act. We can look the part. I can look like a Christian. I can have my Sunday face on. But when you peel back that external uh, Sunday best and you look at our hearts, it doesn't always look quite what we'd want people to see. And this culminates, I think, in the week by week challenge in what Jesus says in verse 48. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's almost as if, as I'm reading this, he's saying, you're hearing this from the Pharisees, but I'm telling you, this is what it really looks like. And then at the end, for those that really don't get it, if you think you're okay, this is what's expected, be perfect. Because it's almost as if we get to this point and we can say, no, but I'm, I'm, well, I'm not there. But ultimately, in God's kingdom, true righteousness is perfection right down to our hearts. That's what Jesus says, the righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law really is. And we're going to see tonight, in the most challenging verses I think we've seen yet, that true righteousness shows itself in perfect love. Now, at the end of this message, uh, I'm not going to expect you to be going away and thinking, okay, I've got to get perfect. Okay? Uh, As a bit of context to that, perfect is, is God's standard. He's not going to expect and want something less, but we know we're a work in progress. One day in heaven, we'll be perfect. But the idea here is that this is what we should be striving for in our Christian lives. This is what we should desire and long for, even though we know we're not going to ever make it to perfection. If anything, the more closer to God we get and the more like God we become, the more aware of the fact that we're not perfect we are. And the most godly people that I've ever met are those that see themselves as anything but perfect. Even when, when I look at them, they seem to be close to it. But this perfect love here is a huge challenge for us. This calls us to a a totally different playing field to what the rest of the world lives like. We've seen that all the way through this sermon, the Christian counterculture. But to love as Jesus calls us to love here is, is so revolutionary that even those of us who profess to be Christians struggle even to read these words if we understand them let alone live them out. And that's because deep down so often we share with the religious leaders of the day a shallow definition of love. And that shallow definition of love is love those who are like you. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Well, as we've seen before, when Jesus says you have heard that it was said, he's referring to the interpretation that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had of the Old Testament law. And that's what they were teaching everybody else. And what Jesus is quoting is certainly their interpretation of parts of the Old Testament because the quote itself is not in the Old Testament. You'll never find love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Those things are not there in the Old Testament. But he's quoting what they were teaching. The part about loving your neighbor is there, for sure. But nowhere are God's people told, Hate your enemy. As the religious leaders summarized their interpretation of the Old Testament teaching on love, they did some pretty dodgy mathematics. They performed some addition and some subtraction. So, first of all, what's the addition? Well, the addition was, hate your enemy. They assumed that if they were to love their neighbor, then the opposite must be true as well. They must hate their enemy. So they added that to this law. And to the religious leaders, their neighbor was only their fellow Jews, who were just like they were. And they hated all Gentiles who are non-Jews. And they even had a name for them. They called them dogs. They hated... Not just Gentiles, but they hated any Jews that disagreed with them. And we see this especially in the life of Jesus. Jesus was a Jew and the Pharisees hated him because he criticised them. He didn't always agree with them. Their idea of neighbour was racial. It was about what group they belonged to. And it was personal. They loved those within their racial group that treated them well and agreed with them. But this ignored parts of the law where God calls people to love foreigners and enemies. So, in terms of the racial side, God causes people in Leviticus chapter 19, the same chapter, by the way, where we read, Love your enemy, to the following standard. Or, Love your neighbour, sorry. This is what Leviticus says The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You see, in the Old Testament, they were to love the foreigner, not to hate them. They were to welcome them, because they were once foreigners. And God even called on his people to care for enemies in the Old Testament. Look at the quote there from Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. This tells what to do if you come across an enemy's ox or a donkey. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. You see, the foreigner was to be loved, not hated. And even the enemy, if you see an enemy's carry walking down the road and it's lost, you go return it to help them, to show love to them. How contrary this teaching is to the Pharisees' and the teachers of the law. So where did they get their idea to hate their enemies? Because it must have come from somewhere. Most likely it came from two sources. First of all, from the commands that God gave to his people to destroy the enemies of his people. For example, in the conquest of Canaan and in other places like in the imprecatory Psalms. Now, in both cases of the conquest of Canaan and in the Psalms, God is not speaking about individual vengeance against people that have annoyed you. Rather, he's speaking to a specific national situation. It's exactly the same kind of principle that we looked at with an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember when we said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, it was about the judicial system, it was about the court So when someone was in court, eye for eye, tooth for tooth was limiting the amount of punishment that could take place in the court. And here the similar principle applies. When God is talking in the Old Testament about destroying enemies, he's talking about nations that have been the enemies of the people of God. He is not giving license to his people to just hate whoever disagrees with them or who are from a foreign nation. So they were adding, hate your enemy. It was an addition to the law. But as well as addition, they were doing another kind of mass. They were doing subtraction. You see, the command to love your neighbour is found, first of all, in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. This is what it says. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge among anyone among your people. But love your neighbour as yourself, I am the Lord. Notice what's subtracted, what's missing in the command in verse 43 of Matthew 5, to love your neighbour, what's missing? As yourself. There's a subtraction. You see, our problem regarding love isn't that we don't know how to love. We do know how to love because we're really good at loving ourselves, aren't we? I mean, just think about that for a second. We know how to love ourselves in basic ways. Who brushed your teeth this morning? Who uh, feeds you? Who uh, puts clothes on? Who shelter for yourself? Most of the time, we do that for ourselves, don't we? We love ourselves. We look after ourselves. But we do more than the basics, don't we? We, we save and we spend money for ourselves. We exercise. We pursue hobbies. If we have a need, we meet it. If we have a want or a desire, we fulfil it. If we have an ambition in our lives, we strive for it. And we do what it takes to reach that goal. Our welfare, our comfort, our interests, our physical, spiritual and emotional concerns are important to all of us because we love ourselves. And our love is constant, it's habitual and it's given happily, isn't it? We love to love ourselves. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things. It's a good thing that we brush our teeth, isn't it? It's a good thing that we we eat food and we exercise and we look after ourselves and all those things and get rest. We need to show that kind of love for ourselves. But the problem is, Jesus is saying, that's also how we're to love our neighbour. And that's where the challenge is, isn't it? No wonder the Pharisees wanted to remove that line. Because really, so often, so do we. God tells his people in Leviticus, you're to love your neighbor as yourself, like you love yourself. Uh, John MacArthur says this regarding these verses. In other words, you are to have that same totally consuming, unfeigned, fervent, habitual, permanent love which brings into your hearts their interests, their needs, their wants, their desires, their hopes, their ambitions, and prompts you to do everything you can to make sure that all their welfare, safety, comfort, and interest is met. And that whatever they need, and whatever they want, or whatever pleasure they have, you are anxious to fulfill it on their behalf. Just like you are for yourself. No wonder they subtracted as yourself. Isn't that tough? Isn't that the most difficult uh, teaching you can really hear? Can you see how we find this so difficult? And so their shallow definition of love boiled down to this. You love someone who is your type of person, who does not hurt you, otherwise you hate them. And when you do love them, you don't love them as you love yourself. And I hope you can see how we can love in exactly the same way. Now, this is before we even get to enemies, which Jesus talks about in a moment. This kind of love is what we show to people who are not our enemies, isn't it? I mean, in a minute, Jesus is going to apply this to our enemies. But I struggle to even love my wife in this way. You see the challenge? But let's make it, if you don't, let's make it a bit more personal. Do do you only love people who are your type of people? Even in church, this can be a problem, can't it? Are there people that you avoid... Because you don't like the look of them or they are different from you. What about those who have hurt you in some way? Do you show hate towards them by speaking about them behind their back? Or avoiding them altogether? Again, even in church, we can avoid speaking to someone who feels, who we feel has wronged us. And we can go another way around the chairs to avoid them and not speak to them. Or we can avoid even people in our own homes, can't we, who have upset us. Our brothers and sisters, our husbands and wives. We give them the the silent treatment. We um, perhaps work extra long hours at work because we don't really want to go home and see them. And what about when you do love someone, even someone that you like? Do you love them as yourself? Do you supply their needs in such a sacrificial way that it's as if you were supplying your own needs? And so you go without. I think we have all been guilty of this shallow definition of love. I have. It's hard enough to love people we see as our neighbour, isn't it? And if we just stopped here and we, and we said, OK, let's love our friends and family in this way, I think we'd all go out of the church feeling suitably challenged, wouldn't we? We would all feel that's really hard, isn't it? And and we'd seek God's forgiveness for our failure to love even those that we like in this way. But Jesus takes us even deeper. He cuts to the heart even more when he shows us a deeper definition of love. Love for all people. But I tell you, is where Jesus gives his interpretation of what the real meaning of God's teaching on love is. There are two commands given, and there are two reasons why those commands are given. So the commands relate to enemies, but they can apply to all people. And in essence, that's Jesus' point. Our neighbour is not just the person who we like, or is our type of person, but our neighbour is anybody that is in need, even our enemy. And that's the point that was shown clearly in the parable of the Good Samaritan, isn't it? In that parable, there is love shown to an enemy that is in need. So there's two commands and two reasons. The first of the two commands. Number one, love your enemies. Love your enemies. This is the reverse side of what we saw in verses 38 to 42, about eye for eye and tooth for tooth. In those verses, uh, we're told... To resist them, not to resist them, or push back against them. So when someone has something against you, uh, an evil person, uh, Jesus says in verse thirty-eight, uh, verse thirty-nine. Sorry, don't resist them, or in other words, push back against them. But here is the other side to that coin. Here, rather than push back against them, love them. It's almost another step up uh, the holy ladder, if you like. Okay, don't resist them, but love them. But what does it mean to love here? Love is a selfless attitude. And it's an attitude of goodwill to the other person. It's shown in sacrifice for their best interest. Just like we love ourselves. It's not based on how we feel. We don't have to really like our enemy. But it's how we act. Notice, uh, not right now, but you can read it when you get home. Notice in 1 Corinthians 13, when it talks about love, where love is defined... All those words are verbs, they're doing words, they're things we do regardless of how we feel. And that means we don't have to like everybody, or anybody for that matter, but we're to treat them as if we do like them, by showing them love. As well as not being based on feeling, this kind of love is not based on how we are treated by them either. On what that other person does. It's not like at Christmas time when we are scrambling around on Christmas Eve for a present for somebody because we've realized they're going to give us one. That's not how this kind of love works. It's not the Christmas card list. I've got a, you know, this person sent me a card, I'll send this person a card. It's giving regardless. All that we we defined as loving ourselves earlier is how we are to love even our enemies. So the first command is love our enemies and the second flows from this. Look at the, the, look at the words there in the scripture in verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you. Now prayer for enemies naturally follows on from loving them. Because prayer is a, an act of love, isn't it? And when we pray for someone as we ought to, we're praying for their highest good, which first and foremost is their salvation. When we pray, For that, We're also praying for for justice, for any wrong that they've done, but we're praying that Jesus would take that punishment for them with his death on the cross. We're praying, praying for salvation. And praying for enemies is an imitation of Jesus Christ, who prayed for his persecutors' salvation when he was hanging on the cross, and he prayed, Father, forgive them. And that was echoed by Stephen, the martyr, who was stoned to death, and he prayed for the forgiveness of his enemies. As well as an act of love, prayer also is a means of helping us to love. You, it's re, you cannot continue with an attitude of hate towards somebody when you are on your knees praying for them. It's, I mean, you just can't do that. Praying for someone has a way of enabling our love for them to grow as we bring them before our Father. So two commands. Love enemies, pray for them. But Jesus gives us two reasons why these commands should be followed. And the first reason is is this. It imitates our Father in heaven. It imitates our Father in heaven. Look at verse 45. The reason that we're supposed to be this way is that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now this is not saying that we earn the title of God's children, if we love our enemies and pray for them, as if we merit it. It's rather saying that if we love enemies, we will be recognized as God's children as we live this way, because we'll be imitating Him. It's a, it's a family likeness. Now I do things, sometimes odd things, that my father does. I've never really lived with my father. He, he left when we were uh, four years old. But when we meet Him, I'm just like Him in so many ways. We don't see each other often, but it's uh, like father, like son. There's a family likeness. And that's what it's talking about here. I mean, in our church, you know, I mean, if we had a visitor to the church, they would know who some of the children's parents are just by looking at them. And if they stayed for a few weeks and got to know some of the parents, they'd know who some of the children are by how they act. And that's what it's talking of here. We are known as the children of the father, because of the way we act. That's what Jesus means. Look at how loving enemies is in the family likeness. Our father in heaven owns the son. Notice uh, in those verses it says he causes his son, his son. So he's the owner of the son, okay? The father owns it. He made it, it's his, okay? And he says he, it causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the evil and the good. Notice how the focus is on the evil person. Notice the order. Evil person, good person. Righteous person, unrighteous person. Evil and unrighteous are at the beginning and the end of this illustration. So he's talking about how God treats the evil and the unrighteous. And the sun doesn't just shine on the people of God. He allows it to shine on everybody. And the rain uh, falls on everybody, even those who hate God. Maybe in our country we might say that the the rain uh, falls a lot on God's people and on those who are not God's people. But you get the point. On a sunny day, I can enjoy the sunshine and, and the gentle breeze and all the beauty of God's creation, just as much as Richard Dawkins, who hates God, can enjoy the same thing. We could both go walking together up a mountain in the sunshine and enjoy the views, and we both can enjoy it. We'd give glory to different people, but we both have the same benefit of the sun. The rain fell to help crops grow in Nazi Germany. And the leaders of that nation, that was uh, that, that dastardly regime, enjoyed the good food that came from that crops. On the righteous and the unrighteous, on the good and the evil, sun and rain uh, come. And they come from our Heavenly Father, because he owns the sun. Did you know that every breath you take... And every breath that anyone takes is just grace and mercy. Every time we breathe, it's because God allows it. Anyone that's alive and enjoys anything is far more than what anyone deserves. Because we were God's enemies. In fact, anything more than being condemned to hell right now is amazing grace. Uh, Theologically, it's known as what's called common grace. That is that all people are able to enjoy God's gifts. It's only saving grace that is for God's people alone. And when we show love to enemies, regardless of what they have done to us, we are imitating that grace that our Father shows, and we have the family likeness so people will know whose children we are. So the first reason, the family likeness, we imitate our Father... But the second reason is given in verses 46 and 47, and that's this. Loving this way makes us stand out from the world. Let's read those verses again. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Now, this is the first time in Matthew's gospel... As we, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel, this is, I think, the like, 25th Sermon or something like that, um, that we've been going through it, and it's the first time in that time that tax collectors have come up. So the tax collectors uh, were the most despised people in the Jewish culture. They were local men employed by the Roman Empire to collect taxes for them. And they would collect the Roman tax, and then they would take a cut for themselves, making the tax really high and the tax collectors really rich. And some tax collectors were Jewish. And because they were Jewish working for the Romans, they were seen as enemies of the Jewish people. And they were generally uh, corrupt. And we see them uh, grouped together uh, within the Gospels with other lowlife with the phrase, tax collectors and sinners. But the tax collectors, even though they are corrupt, even though they are hated... Well, they love each other. They would get together and have tax collectors, you know, potluck dinners and stuff like that. They would have a great time meeting together as tax collectors. They knew how to love each other, hated as they were, and no doubt they hated others as well. They loved each other. And if you love people who are just like you, well, God's not going to reward that. Because it's just like the tax collectors, you know better than they are. And elsewhere we read how God does reward living for him. But loving people you like not, is not really living for him. Kingdom citizenship is not shown when we just get a group of people together that are just like us and who we really love and we, we really like to be around. Everybody does that, even the tax collectors. And then we see the pagans in verse 47. Well, the tax collectors are an example of a group that can love each other well, the pagans are an example of a group who greet each other. To greet somebody is to welcome them. It's to spend time together without making someone feel like you don't want them to. I mean, you know what it's like when someone, uh, they, they come around your house and it's just an inconvenient time. You know, you're, you're, you're about to eat dinner, you're about to start a film, uh, all that kind of thing, and you just want them to go. And and then they sit down, and you know they oh they've sat down. They're going to stay. They're not going to go. So and you you, you, but you don't greet them. You don't make them feel welcome. You're doing whatever it takes to get them out of your house so you can carry on. Well, maybe that's just me that does that, but you know what I mean. Even the pagans know how to greet somebody. Okay, They, they they greet them. Even though they were called dogs, they knew how to welcome each other. And if we only welcome people into our lives who we really feel love towards, then we're no better than those pagans. How much more are we doing than they? Not much more if we only greet people that are just like us. Tax collectors and pagans are perhaps not strong for us today. Uh, Perhaps we might need to bring a more modern context. Because to the, the people Jesus was speaking to, These people were the lowest of the low. So for us today, what would we say? Uh, Maybe we would say something like this. If you love those who love you, what rewards will you get? Aren't even um, the people in prison for child abuse, aren't they even able to do that? They can meet together and have uh, groups that meet and, uh, and, and be friends with one another. Or maybe a group of murderers that welcome each other into a murderer fraternal in prison or something. Or a rehab group. For, for for different things, you know you know what I mean. That's the kind of thing Jesus is saying here. The worst of the worst in society that people look down on, even they love each other. But the point is this: not of how bad these people are, but Jesus is saying, really, you are no better than these. If we only love like people like ourselves, our love is no different than anybody else's. And the point, and Jesus' point is that it should be so much more. The phrase much more comes from the same word in verse 20, exceeding. Our righteousness must exceed the religious leaders. And our love must be much more than the people that belong to this world. And the challenge to us is this. Is your love any more than anybody else's who are not Christians? Our lives must show a differential from the people of... World in the way that we love, and we do this by loving all people, by welcoming all people, and by doing so deliberately and practically. So let's begin applying this to our, uh, to perhaps to our nearest neighbours, and then work outwards. So our, our nearest neighbour is the people in our home. Are you loving your spouse and children in ways that mean you are dying to self? Are you looking for their needs and fulfilling them? Our love for our spouse and our children should be much more than the average family. It should be noticeable that your love is Christian love. What about your wider family? Are you loving them in this way? Or are there members of your family that you class as enemies or are treating as such? The call here is attempt to do something about that. Some situations in families are complex, I understand, But at the very least, we should consider our attitude in light of this. What about the church? Is there someone in church that you are avoiding for some reason? Why don't you love them with an outrageous self-sacrificial love that is shown here? What about at work or in the community where you live? You don't have to like everyone at work. You don't have to like everyone in your street but we are called to treat them as though they are our best friends in the world. Are you praying for the people you've thought about? That would be a place to begin, wouldn't it? In one sense, we think of this in terms of the persecuted church, loving enemies and praying for those who persecute you. And if I was preaching this message in a, persecu- a country where they're facing that kind of persecution, perhaps... Uh, Most certainly, I suppose, we would preach this differently. But for us, I think we need to work on loving all people in the context where we are. And not think that these verses don't apply to us because we're not facing this kind of persecution. As we hear these words, we are tempted to say, at least I am, who can possibly live this way? Well, the answer is found in verse 48. Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. Nothing shows true righteousness like this kind of love. And that's the call for us. That's the call of the kingdom. Earlier in Matthew we read about Jesus abolishing the law. Not abolishing the law, rather, but fulfilling the law. And Paul writes in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8, that loving one another fulfills the law. Notice how all six of the illustrations in chapter 5 are about how we relate to other people. Murderer, adultery, divorce, oaths, retaliation, love for enemies. We imitate our Father when we live in this way. But of course, if you want to find the example of perfect love, we look no further than the man who is preaching this sermon, Jesus Christ Listen to these wonderful words from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for who? The ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His enemies. We were enemies of God and he died for us. Now we have never loved somebody as else as God has loved us. Shining his sun, pouring his rain on us, giving us his good gifts. But we neither have never been hated or treated as badly by anybody as we each individually have treated God our Father. We have been enemies of God. Nobody, however horribly you've been treated, has, treat, has treated you as badly as you have treated God. And yet, our God, despite us being his enemies, sent his only son to die on the cross in our place so we could have eternal life. And when God has done so much for us, who are we To say, I can't do this, I can't love this way, I don't want to love this way. Not just in terms of loving enemies, but living as he calls us to as citizens of his kingdom. Heeding the call to be perfect and to live for his glory. Let us be under no illusion. Perfection is what we're called to. The righteousness that Jesus is looking for that exceeds the religious leaders is perfection. This follows on from the verses we've just seen, but it also, if you notice, bookends the whole of this section of Matthew 5. It's like from verse 20 and verse 48, they they bookend each other. You need to be righteous, more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And then the other bookend, be perfect. And that's the summary of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Kingdom righteousness is perfection. Well, who can live like this? Nobody. None of us can. Of course we can't. But Jesus did. And when he died in our place, he credits us with his righteousness. He puts his righteousness on our account. So when the Father looks at us, he sees us as perfect. But then the Father sends the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we have the power that we need to live the call of the kingdom here we're not perfect yet and this side and this side of heaven we're going to keep striving for it but one day when we are called to glory we will be but until that day comes we press on towards perfection as an imitation of our father but notice something here he says this be perfect but he doesn't say Be perfect and that's it. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, you have the support of the Father in whose likeness you are now as his children with you all the time. You see, be perfect is not as if Jesus is saying to us, go and fly, when he's not made us to be a bird. It's impossible. If someone came to me and said, Steve, I want you to go jump off the roof of this building and then fly over the common." well I'd look at them and I'd say that's stupid I'm not a bird, I haven't got wings now some of us can look at this command a little bit that way, be perfect that's a stupid thing to say of course I'm not perfect I'm never going to be perfect but the point is that we are not birds so we're not going to fly but we are children of our father and we are like him and growing in his likeness so As we close here, we we say this, go and love all people just like your father loved you. It's not going to be easy, but then it wasn't easy for our father, was it, to love us. So let's imitate him as we love each other and our enemies so that it can be said of us, like father, like son. And let's keep striving to be more and more like Jesus. Until that day in heaven when truly it will be said that we are perfect, even as our heavenly Father is perfect. And remember, as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, all of these commands that we have heard Jesus say are not just commands. They are promises. You will be like this. You will not murder. You will not commit adultery. Uh, divorce, you won't need oaths, you won't need eye for eye, tooth for tooth, you won't have uh, enemies, you'll love perfectly because in heaven those things will be true, they are commands to live and strive for but they're promises that will be fulfilled and in the end the promise is this you will be perfect even as your heavenly father is perfect well let's close uh, with a song we're going to sing Uh, And then after we have sung, we're going to come around the Lord's table and we're going to, at the Lord's table, remember uh, the love that the Father has for us as his enemies. So we're going to sing now uh, the mystery of the cross. We're in the chorus. It says, once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. So let's stand as we sing.